Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. Today's guest is Ingalil Valrus Ritter, Dean of the School of Architecture at Woodbury University. Ingalil was just elevated to the College of Fellows in the AIA, a high distinction awarded to only 3% of AIA members. Ingalil also is the director of WUHO, Woodbury University's Hollywood Gallery, which is where we met for this interview. She serves on the advisory board to the LA Forum of Architecture and Urban Design and previously was on the board of the AIA LA. Prior to her tenure at Woodbury, Ingalil taught at Cornell, Yale, the Bartlett, and the SciArc, and also worked as an architect, specializing in the building envelope and the experimental use of glass. In this episode, Ingalil discusses the importance of diversity and the role of ethics in architecture and architectural education. Through her work at Woodbury, Ingalil has created multiple pathways for future architects, leading to a field that is more accessible and inclusive. She also talks openly about issues of gender and the complexities of raising a daughter. I am struck by Ingalil's optimism, charisma, and authentic care for others, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I do feel like there's something happening. It's very relevant right now in terms of conversations about civic engagement and diversity and inclusion. And I feel like those are things that we've been talking about for decades. And finally, people are, it's kind of fashionable, but people are listening and it's hip. Right. Especially talking, interviewing with women, for whatever reason, that idea of architecture as a civic engagement has been coming up more often. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's not like I'm pushing that on anyone. I know. And I certainly never, I mean, certainly as a student, so I graduated in 90, we never talked about it. And um, I don't know if you saw my interview with Chris Hawthorne in Mm -hmm. the LA Times. What was interesting about that conversation is we were talking about ethics. How all the places I taught, Cornell and Yale and the Bartlett and SciArc, I mean, ethics was never the topic, you know, right. it was always an afterthought, but it was never the driving agenda. And I find it so refreshing that it is. And civic engagement is a part of that. Um, but then, you know, you think about what, what, what mechanisms do you need in order to operate ethically? And there are so many different ways of approaching it. And that can be, you know, sustainable practice and limited resources and looking at resource use and water, for example, and energy. It can be feeling an obligation that our students are working in the field that they studied. I mean, that's, to me, probably the biggest ethical right. issue as an educator. And the issue of the cost of education becomes also a huge ethical issue. But then when you think about design, you know, designing for people who don't have the resources or communities um, and, and recognizing that with good design comes better quality of life, comes a more efficient way of living, comes healthier cities and comes all these other benefits... And then trying to communicate that to the government and so policy changes and communicate that to investors. And those are all tools then that you overtly put into your curriculum, you know, whether it's in your professional practice classes and learning the contractual obligations, but then also how you can, the added value of ethical issues in terms of 
you know, pure design and looking at fabrication and material use and, you know, how the decisions you make in terms of just simply orienting a building and how that can have such incredible lifetime implications on energy usage, for example. And so that becomes a whole conversation. And, and then history and theory, and you look at, you know, vernacular architecture, you look at, you know, how to um, occupy cities and how cities then, you know, the s- systems work and then you, th- you approach that from an ethical perspective. So every single realm of the discipline can be approached very overtly by just asking these questions of ethics. And I think that that just creates this incredible richness, you know, this rich tapestry of tools that the students then leave with and then can then contribute into the professional realm and beyond. Quite a few of our students end up working in the mayor's office and end up, you know, really, we have a program in San Diego, the real estate development program, and a majority of those students graduate and then go on to build their projects. And San Diego has, I think, a more aggressive inclusion of low-income housing, for example. So many of those projects have that element to them. So those are just some examples. That's pretty awesome. I think we talk a lot about the diversity within the field of practice of how you can take your architecture education and do so many different things besides the stereotypical architect's Mm -hmm. career. Mm -hmm. How do you plan for that in a curriculum? Um, So our students, a couple of years ago, our graduate students started a lecture series that they called Architects Beyond Architecture, and they would invite to the campus architects who had started other enterprises. And so the woman who started the Coolhaas truck, for example. Um, and what I found really interesting was that so many of the people they invited, whether it was by design or accident, were actually Woodbury graduates. And so we had a developer, we had a design build contractor come and talk, we had a fashion designer who had started in architecture, we had a fine artist. And these were all Woodbury alumni. And I'm not sure I have the answer to what was it about our curriculum that encouraged them to apply their tools to disciplines that are not traditionally, you know, in their, it's not part of the licensing process. You know, they all at some point stepped off of that track. And that's not to say that they don't come back because some of them do, sure. um, but they're exploring. And I do think that, you know, one thing that I feel like we're very, again, very overt about is building student confidence. And that is something that we really encourage. And so students come to us from all economic levels, which I love. And I think it's harder and harder to find those places where you find people from all walks of life. And many are incredibly accomplished already, but many are very unevenly prepared. And so teaching them how to critically communicate. Um, and this is something my predecessor, Dean Norman Millar, was passionate about. He wanted to make sure that they could communicate in writing. And I think that that's really important to be able to find multiple ways to communicate your ideas, not just in the visual, which is our most comfortable way of communicating through drawings and models, but also through writing, um, through diagramming, through verbal oral presentations. We have a really strong liberal arts emphasis. Um, so I would say that our students leave very, very well educated. So it's not just architecture, but also have taken rigorous writing courses, rigorous critical thinking courses. And I do think that that allows them to begin to think about architecture outside of the normal way, you know, that I think that that really encourages a different way of thinking. And they become those tools that allow them to then question the boundaries and then to critically 
cross those boundaries in really wonderful ways. Nice. I think it's an interesting conversation, the the diversity that's here in California and the international student population. Students come in with so many different levels of preparation and abilities and strengths. And I think it makes for a really rich environment mm -hmm. and as well as a really difficult environment mm -hmm. to teach in. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you handle that at Woodbury? Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about Woodbury uh -huh. is that we're all very incredibly ambitious for our students. You know, they're always just challenging students to operate at their highest level. And one of the things we like to say that it's not the ultimate achievement where you end up, it's the distance traveled. And recognizing that, you know, students are coming in at multiple levels, you know, and some are struggling more than others in various skills, but still challenging them. You know, what I find always so wonderful, and I think that's part of the studio culture, and I think it's the best of the architecture studio culture, is this caring about each other and becoming a community. And, you know, my closest friend is still a woman that I went to graduate school with. You know, I think that's something that the students also value so highly. You know, it's not that as competitive an environment as I've seen, you know, in places. And so I think that competition becomes more about supporting each other and, and raising each other. Um, and I do think that that is something that I, that I have recognized more at Woodbury than I have at the other places that I've taught. I think it's what what keeps so many of us at, at Woodbury because we see that sort of um, Norman used to call it the Woodbury magic, and we see that you know that light go on in, in our students. Yeah, you must be very proud of what the school's doing, and you've talked before about Norman's influence on you. Can you talk more about what you've learned from him and other mentors or leaders? Yeah, so I did benefit from a lot of strong women uh, mentors. As a student, Dagmar Richter was my thesis advisor at UCLA. I worked for um, Henry Smith Miller and Lori Hawkinson in New York for six, seven years. I had a lot of powerful women who were really, you know, this was 30 years ago now, but really paving the way for many of us, ensuring that there was pure equality. I mean, in, in many ways, they would not talk about gender issues. They saw that as an, you know, as an excuse or as an alibi. So that they, you know, we don't talk about the fact that there is a difference because there is no difference. That was their contention. Coming to Los Angeles and I, I guess maturing myself, I then, you know, a lot of the women I now consider friends and mentors, you know, Barbara Bester and Doris Sung is another one at USC, Linda Tallman, Annie Chu. These are women who, in many ways, I feel like we celebrate our differences, and we do it in radically different ways. And it's something that is not easy to talk about because, on one hand, fundamentally, there is no difference, you know, in terms of value and worth and wages and all of those things. And yet, I do think that we approach problems differently. You know, I have a twin brother, so this is something that's been oh. part of my life. My whole life has always been you know, looking at how the other gender, really intimately, you know, how a man might approach a problem. And of course it's social and cultural, but I think it's also genetic. And I was just watching a presentation by one of my colleagues, not in architecture, but she's married to an architect, Jennifer Peterson, and she has two sons. And she was talking about going into motherhood and anticipating raising her boys, you know, as true feminists. And they're 
tendency to physicalize issues rather than communicate them verbally and was something that really caught her off guard because she thought there is no difference between little boys and little girls, but then she realized there really is. And I think that's actually a magic moment when you realize there is a difference and neither one is better or worse, but you do wish there was a way to celebrate those differences and maximize them in as fruitful a a way as possible. And the hardest thing about being the mother of a a little girl, um, I have to say this election was so painful and, you know, for many reasons political, but also that because it was, you know, here we were looking at all the American presidents and, you know, looking at the their faces and the colors and the gender. And of course, there's just one until the very end where you had an African-American president. And it's a really difficult thing to communicate to a little girl. And, you know, you lead by example, of course. And so she has seen me as a powerful leader and, you know, speaking publicly. And, she, you know, she celebrates that. And she knows that. And yet, there's a moment that's going to come where she's going to wonder why there are no women presidents or women, you know, leaders at the table. And having to explain that is the hardest thing I've ever had to, had to deal with. Yeah. No, I, I can't imagine having to explain that to your daughter. Um, that moment for me was incredibly painful because the initial feeling is these people in my country hate me. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, and for things that have nothing to do with my, with who I am, yeah. my character. Yeah, and there's no logical. There's right, no, you can't use logic, and um, you try, and you know you're trying to build worth and value and confidence, and and yet um, mentors are so important, and seeing those, you know, seeing yourself and recognizing yourself in those people and looking at popular culture now and, you know, taking my little girl to the movies and A Wrinkle in Time, of course, and Black <laughs> Panther, and, you know, and, and I think it's super exciting to be part of this moment and understanding that, you know, I'm an optimist. I do think things are changing and I, it's exciting to be, you know, watching my daughter, then she could really be instrumental in this change and that's empowering. And, you know, watching my husband having to navigate that conversation as well has been really enlightening, and he is an incredibly enlightened man, and um, as, as so many of my colleagues are, and it must be incredibly difficult also to to be a man and you know be part of this conversation. Um, but you know, I'm really focused on the women right now. So. Yeah, <laughs> but, I, but obviously, you know, men have to be part of that conversation, and. One of the things that, you know, when I look at my students and look at the issues of their time, I do think gender is not a burning issue for them because I think they don't, haven't confronted the gender issues yet. Mm-hmm. Although I think some of them have, but that's another conversation. I do think economics is the big issue for them and the economic struggle. And I don't think the two are unrelated. I actually think they're related. You know, the people who have power and um, resources and those who don't. And I do think that that is the big issue of our day. Right. And that's going to be super interesting to see how that plays out because I think we're headed in a scary direction unless there's some way to actually change the you know, economic cycle that we're in. Yeah. But those are big problems. <laughs> those are really big problems. <laughs> you know, Stephen Hawking's death, you know, this is, I remember being a child and you know, imagining the universe and <laughs> trying to think of the economics of the world is is almost as insurmountable a problem. <laughs> <to> <laughs> 
Right. Well, I mean, at least you're doing what you can within this sphere of influence that Woodbury has, which is pretty amazing, actually. You know, it is. And I think Pomona's another one of those schools. And I think that when I talk about this economic diversity and this economic spectrum, 2011 Architect Magazine came out with an article, and it was just about Woodbury University. And it basically said that this is a school where the minority are are Caucasian. So over 70% of the students self-identify as a minority. And this school has the power and potential to change the profession. And that's a really powerful, that was a really powerful moment for us to realize that, you know, while we are beneficiaries, of course, of this diverse city that in which we live and this diverse environment in which we're fortunate enough to be in, and this is something I'm all constantly telling my students, look around you. You have no idea how lucky you are that every student in this classroom is different, radically different from a different uh, ethnic group or economic group or country or whatever the differences are, but that the students that we're graduating are going to change the profession. I mean, that's huge. That is huge. And, um, and it's an uphill battle. And, you know, you look at the national demographics, over 40% of our students are Hispanic. So we're a Hispanic-serving institution, federally designated. And so we have, you know, international students, you know, about 20% international, but they're coming from all over the place as well, you know, mm-hmm. Middle East and Asia and, you know, and then African-American students. And it is powerful to think how just giving these students the tools to work in a profession that alone has tremendous, um, you know, has the potential to change things in such a huge way. And that's a really amazing feeling, you know, knowing that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I just went through a process. I just became a fellow. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. And I have to say it was a long, painful process. (laughs) So when you're nominated, you're like, yeah just got nominated, but then the work starts. But the beauty of the process is I spent an entire year putting together a portfolio of work. And, you know, I think the clearest thing that we've done at Woodbury is what we like to call pathways and to create new pathways for students and recognizing that a lot of our students come from communities where they didn't even imagine that university or college would be a possibility. So, about 10 years ago, my colleague Janine Centurion and I started a middle school architecture program. And there are very, I, I don't know of very many, you know, no. that are specific to middle school. So we, you know, what we thought was we have to reach them sooner than high school because by high school, they already have in their minds, you know, some inklings. Not, you know, we wanted to educate them and their parents as to different possibilities, especially design mm-hmm. of the built environment. So that was a very clear pathway, you know, that was different and unique to the usual pathway. But pathways can be, you know, when you come to a school, we also encourage, and this gets back to one of your earlier questions, students to, you know, we like to say that um, it's a small enough environment that you can design your own degree. That's and amazing. So our graduate students, you know, this is something we really emphasize that, you know, we have faculty that are incredibly diverse. And by that, I mean, they're practicing in radically different ways, whether they're scholars in writing, whether they're practicing or doing exhibition design or um, furniture design, fine art, experimental work. So the students themselves can create their own pathways. And so if you begin to imagine all the different pathways that every single one of us can make a difference, you know, whether it's going to a middle school and talking to them about what you do, 
I think what you're doing, you know, is opening people's understanding of what architects can do. I think more of us need to be communicating at that level. And that's that's a type of a pathway, right? That's right. the sort of and outside of our architect bubble. Exactly. Yeah. And finding the things that are accessible. You know, one of the things as a dean that I do primary you know, I do fundraising a lot now. And sure. so the economic pathway is very it's you very often the thing that stops people from being able to progress. And so being able to help students we have a really close partnership with our San Fernando Valley chapter AIA that gave us $160,000 for student scholarships. And for a little chapter to be able to do that, when people, as a member of the AIA, it's like, well, what does AIA do for me? Well, I'm like, well, let me tell you what our little chapter did for us and for our students. And so that's also, you know, the economic pathway is such a such an important one. Wow. So I think each of us, you know, AWA is another one, you know, mentorship. And um, these are all ways that every single one of us that participates in the, you know, wonder of architecture world can help the next generation, whether it's, you know, some sort of, you know, even just a $25 donation to AWA scholarship fund or speaking to a prospective student or going to your middle school or high school and talking to them because, you know, the ACE mentorship program downtown or these are all things that we each can do. The other thing that I wrote about was this gallery, was the Wuho Gallery. And I stepped in about 10 years ago because we used to use this as a student space. And um, then there was a moment where we couldn't do it anymore because it's not accessible. And so we had to stop using it as a, as a studio space. And so this lot, this was empty and nobody was doing anything with it. So by completely by non-design, I stepped in and we started programming events. And I started working with Kristen Stainer, who was one of our faculty members, and Jaina Zweiman did an exhibition here. And then Mimi Zeiger became our director of communication, and then she and I and Barbara Bester got involved. And so there was like this amazing lineage of people who were involved in helping program the space. So we opened it up as a public gallery. Having a public gallery of architecture on Hollywood Boulevard, yeah. where you have people wandering in, you know, <laughs> as my sponsor called it, bringing architecture to Main Street USA, is a really amazing gift. And it's something that grew organically, but in a way that now that I think back, I love. You start to look at some of the shows that we've had here, and it's giving voice to people who haven't had the exposure before. And that's, again, a really powerful way to make a difference. I'll tell you about the last two shows we did, which were pretty amazing. But Barbara Bester is the director of our Julia Schumann Institute. And you may or may not know, but in the Watts riots, um, Paul Williams' archive um, was lost in a fire. And so there is very little digital archive of his work. And so this was a larger effort to create a visual digital archive to go back and record the buildings, over 3,000 buildings, this incredible man, built over his lifetime here in Los Angeles primarily, and provide a photographic record of that. So having a place and a venue to be able to put together a project like that is pretty spectacular. Wow. The last show that we did, though, was called Platform. And that was Mark Nebu, Associate Dean at Woodbury, who, when he was chair of our architecture program, started cultivating these relationships with community colleges here in Southern California. And talk about a pipeline and a pathway. This is a, it's an incredible, powerful one. And, and so this was a show that he conceived of with Heather Flood, our chair of the architecture program, to invite the community colleges that have architecture and interior architecture programs here in Southern California and give their students 
a place to exhibit. So it was a group exhibition, and it was wonderful. And I sent the information to Frances Anderton, for example. You know, she's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Nobody's ever done this before. And so I do very little. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I feel like I'm a producer. You know, I invite people to do shows like that, you know, Ravi's. You know, here we are sitting in this bamboo forest. But to be able to give a platform to people who wouldn't otherwise have one is a pretty powerful thing. So I feel like more of us should be doing that. And what's really wonderful right now in Los Angeles is there's an awful lot of little galleries and we're filling in the gaps that are left behind by the larger museums that don't have permanent collections of architecture. And it's really exciting to be part of that, you know, A plus D museum, materials and applications, the little galleries in Chinatown, for example, LAX Art, Cyrox Gallery, that are creating a diaspora and a far richer conversation about the cultural value of architecture in Southern California in particular. Yeah, it's super exciting. I mean, I think that idea of having the community colleges have a show is incredible. And I saw photos of the work and it looked spectacular. It's good. It's really good yeah. work. Yeah. And a lot of our students and probably yours as yeah. well are transfer students. Exactly. exactly. And that's yeah. a whole other pathway into yeah. architecture yeah. that's very accessible. I know. I know. I do think the community colleges are an incredibly powerful vehicle and tool that we have and that we need to make sure that they're part of the larger conversation around the table because they are in the communities. I mean, that's one thing that we in Woodbury and Burbank, I mean, we are doing projects in Pacoima and Silmar. One thing I haven't mentioned is our Agency for Civic Engagement in Woodbury that's led by Janine Centuris, our director. And this is what she's done for the last 10, 15 years is found nonprofits and then doing a 15-week, I don't know how she does it, but 15-week design-build studio where the students are then in the beginning engaging with the clients developing a project and then building the final project. So the project she's working on right now is with the National Health Foundation, and they're looking at a homeless rehabilitation facility in South Central L.A. The project she did before that was um, Watts Walk. Right, with uh, Elizabeth Timmy. Exactly. And so there was that larger series of projects in Watts. It's really powerful to see the students... Um, being able to give back, you know, a lot of them come from communities that have never really had examples of good design. And so seeing the ability of these little acupunctural projects bring recognition and value and ownership to the community, saying, you know, people, ca- somebody cares. And I do think that, that there's an incredible political power to that as well. So just, just <laughs> more examples of how great we are. Right. Well, I mean, I wanted to ask you actually about one other program. I think you have a lot of really interesting, unique programs that you're doing at Woodbury, the the IPAL, the Integrated Path to Licensure. I am amazed that you can combine school (laughs) and licensure. That's like incredibly crazy to me, but... I know. And as, (laughs) as a professional who... I'm amazed too. This was something that was, again, Norman was incredibly passionate about because our students are exactly the type of student that gets held up along the way to, in the path to licensure for primarily economic reasons or time or they're taking care of their family for whatever reason, you know, and they're stepping off the track. And, and so this was an opportunity for us to help streamline the process. Um, there are a number of schools that have opted not to participate, and I get it, and I respect that, and for exactly what you were saying, how can you, a school is supposed to, you know, you should be free to dream and meander and travel and do all these things, and IPAL, there are students 
are much more quickly beginning to act like professionals. So I can see the objections to it, no question. And also another colleague of mine at another school said, this is just an example of NCARB asking academia to fix their problem. <laughs> oh, wow. I never looked at it that way. But when you say it, sure. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I feel like we're all in this together and whatever we can do to help our students. So the way we do IPAL, and, you know, every school is different. It's a competitive process for us. The students have to apply to get into IPAL. They submit a portfolio, and then we select the ones that we think these are the students who are ready to start working towards their licensure. And so we started with a consortium of firms, and that's been really exciting for us. My part of this is reaching out to the firms and getting them on board to hire our students. So we have 40 firms now in our consortium. Wow. And they range from small boutique, you know, Walker Workshop and small boutique offices to Molson and Gensler to the big offices, right. you know. We have SOM and AC Martin and... And it's amazing to now have these partnerships with these firms. So it has been a win-win for us, no question. We have students so far ahead. I mean, in third year, they have, we have some students with 2,000 hours. It's like, wow. oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. And so they have the opportunity then of taking a year out and doing their hours. We've had a few, though, who've continued as part-time students and doing the work. So that it's kind of up to them in a way. Yeah. Um, and we didn't change our curriculum. Nothing changed in our curriculum. Nothing changed in our in our learning outcomes. So they are getting their experience and taking the exam and still students. And believe me, that's not an easy thing. No. It's really the most ambitious students are doing it. No sure. question. But I'm seeing the students really flourish in this way. And there are, you know, we've already had some who said, you know what, this is too intense for me. And they step off the track, uh -huh. but they're not going to lose their hours. They're, no. You know, it's a, it's a benefit to them. They've already participated. They already worked in an office far sooner than they would have otherwise. I mean, is it still five years for an undergraduate? It's still five years. Some students will probably take another year. You know, as I said, we're in the third year, so we have yet to get to that point. And sure. so, in a way, we're building the plane as we're flying it. So, <laughs> these students are in progress, and yeah. we're working through ourselves the details of the program. For most of the students in the program, they're super excited about it. Um, but again, it's not for all students. And, you know, I would say probably 20% of our students are in the program. Oh, wow. That high. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And again, it's the first three years, so we haven't gone through an entire cycle. So we'll see if that continues. Right. I look at it from the perspective of a very sort of practical economic perspective. If, you know, I was a student and I was worried about the low pay of mm -hmm. an architecture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm job right out of school when you're not licensed and you're doing your internship hours, it's really amazing to think that you would graduate with your license and be able to get that higher paycheck right off the bat to pay your student That's loans. such a good point. <laughs> and, you know, it was an alumna who pointed that out to me, and I had never thought of that perspective. And as students also, they're going to be commanding a greater salary. So I think that that's a really great added benefit. That's and, amazing. And then to have, so, you know, the other thing that this did was it encouraged us as a school to start offering um, again, working with the San Fernando Valley AIA, we now offer free workshops for license exam prep. It's been a vehicle to allow us to provide those steps that are necessary to help our students become right. licensed if that's the path that they want. Right, if that's the path, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's just one more choice that the students yeah. have. So 
It's benefited us. I think our rankings going up is actually partly because we're sending out really good prepared students as part of this process. And I'm very proud of the quality of the students' work samples and the portfolios. This really rich, rewarding loop. Even the students who are not part of IPAL, they can now participate peripherally in this as well. One of the firms that we're working with, NBBJ, Jonathan Ward was telling me, he's the principal of the firm, was that having the, in the first year we had placed the IPAL student, he said, you know, having the Woodbury IPAL student in our office actually helped us because we now had a third-year student closer to getting his license than some of our interns who had been with us for several years. So it really forced us to become more rigorous with our own internship process. And I thought that that was a really awesome outcome that um, none of us could have anticipated. Right. I mean, it took me four years from graduation to get my license, and that was fast. That was quick. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... (laughs) So I think, you know, the last I looked, I think the average time, I think they said 13 years that included education and experience. I think it was down to 11 and a half last year. But with the iPod program, it's six years, you know. (laughs) So that's, as somebody who also took four years, it's like I had a three-year graduate program and then the four years experience, that's less than even we did, you know. And we were fast-tracking it, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the quickest you could do it. Yeah. And it's so exciting to see that these students are just jump-starting the process. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, let me ask you something. I, you know, you're doing all of these different things. You mentioned fundraising as the dean. I mean, besides your regular job Which as the dean. That I kind of like, but <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a very hard time negotiating on my own behalf. But when I'm out there asking for my students, it's, it's actually. <laughs> Not that hard, so. Sure. I mean, it's a great cause, you know. Exactly. And what's great about fundraising for Woodbury is you're going to see the value and the benefit of your gift immediately. That's really cool. How do you manage doing all these things? Because you also co-founded your own practice, and you used to be on the board of AIALA. Yep. You, yep. You're on the board of um, <laughs> the LA, LA Forum. LA like, LA. how do you, and you have a kid? Like, how do you do all of this? You know, I, I think as a dean, you get to take credit <laughs> for a lot of things that you have. You know, you're very. I'm a producer. You know, and. When I think about all the amazing people I teach with and how committed and hardworking they are, it's such a pleasure. I've mentioned many of the faculty, but, you know, my staff are amazing. Catherine Roussel, who runs our current outreach. We have Matthew Corbett, who runs our Making Complex, our shop. Galena Krauss, who's our administrative coordinator. Marine. I mean, these are people who dedicate their lives to our students. And it's so rewarding to be working with people who are committed. It's a team effort. And... And finding people who are committed and passionate is, I know that that is probably the most important part of my job, is making sure to have the right people in place so that they feel valued, but they're also contributing in the best possible way. So I do think that that's one place that I have been able to contribute. Um, My husband is incredibly supportive and um, has been, you know, there along the way, the entire way, just quietly, just doing all the cooking and shopping. (laughs) I'm so lucky. Um, 
I, you know, it's a tribe. You know, it's this group of people, you know, my close friends that I call practically every day or text and lean on. You know, I was saying to one of my, my boss, um, Randy Stauffer, who's now the provost, who used to be the chair, the interior architecture chair. So we were chairs together and then he became associate dean and now he's the senior vice president of academic affairs. And he's somebody that I've worked closely with for probably 15 years, 13 years. But now as my boss, you know, I was like, God, you know, I feel like I always lean on you. He's like, no, 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 we're all leaning on each other. We're like a TP. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that analogy that we're all just kind of, you know, we borrow from each other's strengths. I was reading yesterday that the people who are successful in life always attributed it to something that's within themselves. But ultimately, success really is luck. That goes against the American way, you know, that we're all hard incredibly hardworking and that's why we got but I do think a luck has a lot to do with it and I think I've been incredibly lucky in terms of the environments and the people that I've worked with and then being able to learn from every one of them we talked about mentors earlier I think back about drawing from the talent and the strength and the abilities of all the people around me and I I'm a leaner I need people to lean on in order to be able to then have other people lean up, <laughs> 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 pop, pop other people up, and um, so again, having people in your corner makes all of the difference in the world. I mean, it seems like your um, expertise and practice was very much in that sort of role where you were highly integrated with the engineering systems and all of this. Yeah. So it seems natural that that's the way you work now. It, it is, and you know, I was lucky enough to work for Smith Miller Hawkinson. I was the project architect on the Corning Museum of Glass, and so very soon out of school. I was running a huge project and I learned on the site and just thinking about it was a huge team so just our design office we had about 20 designers but then thinking about all the consultants and it was unquestionably a team effort and in the same organic way rising to the top of that it's been very similar to the way that I became dean that there's a a willingness to work with others and listen to others and incorporate their ideas and understanding that giving everybody a voice means that everybody's stronger for it. And I think that that's something I work on every day, you know, wanting to make sure that that's part of the tone of the environment, of the working environment. Um, it's not easy, but... Um, yeah, whenever you're rising up within an organization, there's a whole slew of politics that's that's no. you know there with tension and all of this and it sounds like a really healthy environment that you're trying to I'm trying yeah <laughs> there's always work to be done and this is something that you know I've mentioned Norman several times now but this is what I loved most about him he would be congratulating you oh that was a great event but it could have been better. And that's, you know, at the time, I was sort of frustrated. I'm like, why couldn't you just be celebratory? But <laughs> I feel like embedding that and, and recognizing it. So there's always this aspiration. You're always going to be striving for more and better. And also recognizing the team effort, appreciating those who have contributed. Those are all things that you kind of learn along the way. And, and you try to do more and better every time you do it. And so that's... Um, also something that you try to teach your students, you right. know, and I see it constantly in their portfolios. This was a team project. It's like, well, you didn't mention your team. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, that, that's always something that you kind of have to um, make sure is overt. So I'm not always comfortable, you know, as the spokesperson, because I feel like there's so many other people more articulate or more, you know, but I, you know, for better or for worse, I'm the dean. And so having to be the, the person who communicates that, but then ensuring that everybody in your 
team is feeling like there's a collective effort. You know, that's the hardest part. Yeah. Well, from an outside perspective, I love that you're the voice. <laughs> Thank you. I do think that, you know, I was seeing so many amazing women, you know, taking um, these leadership positions. I feel like, you know, last year, my another mentor that I had, Nazreen Saraji, who's a, a woman architect who's from Iran originally, but and then London, and then she now works in Paris, but she took over the program at Hong Kong University. At Hong Kong University, and you can imagine if you think it's bad here in America, <laughs> gender issues are even more Worse overt in China. And so she invited only women to come to a big public review for a week. And it was so enriching. And, you know, there was, you know, women from, there was a woman I met from India, for example, who had been a student of mine at Cornell, and she started a school of architecture in Mumbai. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're my hero. And um, uh, Heather Woofter, who is now the director of architecture at uh, Wash U in St. Louis. And you know, it was just an incredibly rich group of women, and we were all the panel. And it was so empowering and so refreshing. And she's doing the same thing again this year because it was so successful. Um, so it was just this wonderful group of people. You know, and I had just become dean. And it was this moment where I thought, I don't know how to say this without sounding insensitive, but that, that it's easier to talk about diversity if you have come from that place, you know? So my being able to talk about diversity and inclusion is, I think, more powerful coming from somebody who has themselves experienced it. And, you know, my own background is in building technology. And you can imagine, you know, I was always the only woman around the table. And you get used to um, feeling kind of lonely sometimes. Sure. <laughs> and uh, I've really bent over backward to make sure that that never happens again, you know, that there are always a representation that's equal and, and open and, you know, and it's all merit-based, no question. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? <laughs> I mean, we talked about parenthood, and I have to say that's, that is probably, you know, the thing that confounds me the most is, because um, I, I feel like I am a workaholic, no question. I work a lot, and I love my job. And, you know, I know that setting that example for my daughter is, is a really good thing to do. And yet, you know, my mother was a stay-at-home mom, so right. <laughs> I will never compete with that kind of, right. <laughs> that kind of you know, motherhood. And so, um, but, you know, that and also being a woman at a time like this and being, you know, a girl and, and having to explain certain things. I have to say that's been really challenging, even as an educator, you being used to explaining things, but right. explaining to a nine-year-old why things are the way they are and unfair. And that, that confounds me. <laughs> With that. <laughs> well, I was talking with one of my colleagues the other day, and he was saying that um, he's always disappointed in himself and as a parent because he's much more free with his students um, mm -hmm. in in that he's he's encouraging them to fail yeah. in a way that he doesn't feel he can encourage his own kids. Yeah, I recognize that. <laughs> I was always, I, you know, I will say I was always an ambitious person, you know, and my daughter has a really different way of approaching life and letting her develop her voice that's radically different from mine. That too is a challenge. And I can do that at work. Yeah. But you flourish with your, you know, the way you do things. But when it comes to my own child, I have a harder time, you know, letting that happen. And, Oh, you're letting that opportunity slip by, but you know, having to tamp that that instinct down is not an easy thing to do. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds hard. 
Yeah. You never know how hard it's going to be. And then suddenly there's your child and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so much harder than I thought. I mean, there's certain things that are much, much easier than you anticipated. But then there's things like that, making sure that they... Yeah, that they make their own mistakes and not wanting to be there to protect them. Because exactly, not only do I have to deal with the students, I have to deal with their parents. Right. <laughs> and explaining to their parents, you know, it's a good thing that your child is in the studio all the time. Wouldn't you rather they were in studio someplace safe than out on the streets for a party? <laughs> um, but yes, finding you don't always take your own advice. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, and I actually want to close the interview with, um, I, I have this book, Architecture, A Woman's Profession, and um, in it, you and Barbara Bester, you know, Our you manifesto. have the, the manifesto, <laughs> hot fuzz. Um, I found it to be such a wonderful, organic um, statement. Can you talk a little bit about writing this manifesto? Yeah, well, Tanya Kulak, who is a German architect and clearly knows a lot of really amazing women, you know, in writing this book, invited Barbara and me to contribute. And Tanya was asking for a formal, you know, some sort of statement. And so we, Barbara and I sat down one day, I do think there was wine involved, <laughs> and just tried to compose a really brief manifesto about our, our work environment and, and how we approach work. It was what I was talking about earlier, this, you know, I had always been instructed to tamp down the difference. And with Barbara, I always felt, you know, we can celebrate the fact that we are different and we approach problems differently. But then trying to articulate that is always so challenging without giving people an alibi or an excuse to then undervalue what it is that you bring to the table. No, I, I thought it was very concise and powerful just saying that you're the generation that doesn't have to, you know... Act like act, a man. Yeah. Exactly. What was the quote that struck you? Or was it just the whole... <laughs> <laughs> well, the, being among the generation of empowered women who have not had to play the act like a man game, life decisions based upon non-architectural concerns mm -hmm. have fueled our creative, expansive careers. Indeed, our careers are constructed from the relationships and families we have built outside of our archicentric worlds and are the very things that support us as architects. And, um, you know, you go on to say that non-gender biased architectural practices and academia will bring new and broader issues to the discourse and set in motion a new kind of architecture. You know, it, we can't predict even what it would be like, but but seeing that the practice and the education will change. Right. I think that's incredible. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you talk about diversity and explaining that, you know, you want different voices because they're going to bring new problematics. They're going to bring new perspectives. I mean, this is the power of diversity, right. not just women, but, you know, those other voices that have been excluded from the conversation. And you look at, you know, Pritzker Prize winners, for example, you look at the gold medalist and, you know, it's like, no, these are all, however, you know, whether you think that they're diverse or not, they're not. And so I think it's really exciting to see these different voices being included in the, in the canon and in the conversation. And I think that all of us have to look at our own histories. I mean, every single one of us, yeah. even us, and where could we have done better and where could we have been more inclusive and where could we have been more responsible of other people's voices and I think that that's part of that exciting yeah. moment in time that we're in um, and so yeah how, how is it going to change with all these different voices that's the exciting thing to be well thank you so much thank I you. really appreciate thank this you. that was such a pleasure <laughs> and that's our show I'm your host Audrey Sato and today's guest was Ingalil Walrus Ritter 
To find out more about our show and about Ingalil, please visit our website at www.xx-la.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can always follow us on social media at XXLA Podcast or write a review. Thanks for listening.